Well, when you talk to people about Father's Day, it is a, uh, it is a, for a preacher, it's a real challenge. Uh, I love to listen to the preachers that sound like I wish I sound. And uh, so I listened once to a series of messages that Chuck Swindoll did on uh, parenting, family, fatherhood. And he said this at the beginning of the first message. When I was 25 and right out of seminary, I could not wait to tell every mother and father exactly how to structure their marriage, raise their children, and have the kind of family that God wanted them to have. When I was 45, I still had some things I couldn't wait to tell people, but it wasn't nearly as many as when I was 25. And he said, now that I am 60, I wonder if I have anything to say. When our first child was born, we were seminary students. And when we brought him home from the hospital, we had changed his diaper and put him down for his first afternoon nap in our little apartment. And we sat down and went, And Patty looked at me and said, what are we going to do? We don't know how to do this. I said, darling, we're going to be in complete control of him till he's about five or six. And by then, I think we'll know what we're doing. She said, you really think so? I said, oh, sure, absolutely. So she said, great. About three days later, at 3 o'clock in the morning, we heard him screaming at the top of his lungs, and we wondered what was wrong. We jumped up out of bed, ran in there, and as soon as our faces appeared over the rail of the crib, he looked up at us and smiled and started just kicking around like little baby. He just wanted to see us. He didn't care that it was 3 o'clock in the morning. And we picked him up, and we held him, and we put him back down, and as we started to walk away, he started to scream again. And I thought to myself, I don't feel in control here. So I'm glad that when I stand before you on Father's Day or any other congregation on Father's Day, I don't stand here on my own strength or because I can say to you, if you'll be like me, you'll be a great dad. I'm glad that we are here. This room is arranged so that at the center of it all is a pulpit. And on the pulpit is the Word of God. And Baptists organize their churches this way because we believe that center to everything we do is the Word of God. And I'm glad that we can gather around God's Word and say to ourselves, as sinners saved by grace, as sinners in need of instruction, we can get eternal instruction from the only perfect Father that ever existed our divine Father, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of us all. So let's look at three passages of Scripture, two that are almost identical, but the little difference between Ephesians 6.4 and Colossians 3.21 is significant because they complement each other. So let's look together and learn, first of all, Dad's if you want to be the best dad you can be, and it doesn't matter if you're a grandfather also, you're still the father to your children. Learn to use the authority you've been given because your power is limited. That's what these two verses are really saying. 
Let me just read them to you, and then we'll uh, look at how these verses teach us that you need to learn to use authority because you really have not been given that much power. Verse, chapter 6, verse 4 of Ephesians. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And Colossians 3, 21. Fathers, do not exasperate your children that they may not lose heart. Both these verses make the same point. Fathers, you are responsible for the emotional responses and the emotional outlook of your children. It doesn't mean that you can control all their feelings, but it does mean that you have an awful lot of them in your hands. You're a big person in their lives. And if you're not careful, you will wind up exasperating, frustrating to anger, these little people that God has put in your care. The words power and authority are instructive in and of themselves. We don't think about it that much. They sound like they're about the same, but they're not. They're, they're really not even close. The word power in the Greek New Testament is dunamis. It's the word from which we get the word dynamic and, more instructively, the word dynamite. And dynamite is a pretty good picture of what power is. God has a lot of it. God can speak a universe into existence. God can bring a universe to a conclusion. God can send to hell. God can bring to heaven. God can send his son. God can raise him from the dead. Think about dynamite for a minute. Dynamite requires no cooperation to change things, does it? If you take a stick of dynamite and put it under a stump and light the fuse, the stump doesn't need to cooperate. It doesn't need to want to come out of the ground. It doesn't need to want to be changed. When that dynamite goes off, that stump is coming up out of the ground. And that's what a lot of us wish we had when we deal with clients, children, people that frustrate us. We wish that we were like a stick of dynamite, that I could do something to them that would get them to be what I want them to be, and I wouldn't require their cooperation. And when you're very young, you feel like power is available to you. But the longer you live, the more you realize influence is available and authority is available. But I can't think of many times in my life when I changed much of anything without buy-in, without cooperation. Can you, when you honestly think about it? That's, that's me standing over the crib of my seven-day-old child. I didn't have any control over him. And you'd think I would. You'd think I could have said, we won't feed you for two more days. He said, you can't do that. He just wants to see you. Well, authority is very different. Authority is largely positional. Fathers have authority. Mothers have authority. Pastors have authority. Mayors have authority. Uh, authority is the, a position of leadership or decision-making that has a need for buy-in. I don't know whether you have ever had the chance to supervise anybody or not, but when I first, our, when I first uh, had a church that was large enough to have uh, an employee besides a secretary, uh, I really wanted the people that worked for me uh, to cooperate with me, to do what I wanted them to do. 
And uh, so I tried the two things that are the cheap and easy way to get people to do what you want them to do. I tried guilt and fear. I would threaten them with various things, and uh, I would try to uh, I would try to make them feel bad when they did not cooperate. And I realized very quickly those two motives never last for long because nobody can live under guilt or fear very much. So they'll start finding ways to avoid the source of it. And your children do that. And so dads, you need to remember, as a person in authority, guilt and fear are sort of the illegal drugs of the motivational industry. It feels like it will really get people to do things, but it really doesn't change much of anybody. What does change is bringing them up in the, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, as the Scripture says. As authorities in your children's life, you have the ability to really influence them. But you haven't given them, been given the power to change them into what you want them to be, whether they want to cooperate with you or not. And that's just the structure within which we all have to live. Now let's look at Ephesians 6.4. Uh, it's unusual for Paul to give a negative command, do not provoke. Most of the time, his commands are affirmative. Obey this, think this, believe this, do this. But in this case, he has two different places where he says about the same thing. In Ephesians 6, 4, he says, don't provoke. And in Colossians 3, 21, he says, don't exasperate. There isn't a lot of difference between those two words, but there is some. Do not provoke. Don't keep poking your child with the same sharp stick and the same bruised place. Don't get it to the point where every time he sees you coming, all he thinks about is the sharp stick, how he disappoints you. Instead, if you've tried something a few times, how can you nurture him, admonish him, teach him what you want him to do, without prodding him or threatening him or demanding of him something that you don't want him to be. I don't know why most of us arrive at adulthood with the belief that we want to do for our children what we wish had been done for us. But every parent seems to do that. And it's a remarkably ignorant point of view because it assumes that your child is you, and they aren't. So the question ought not to be, what do I wish my parents had done for me? The question ought to be, what do I, as this child's parent, need me to do for him? What does he want to do? What has God made him to be? Where is God leading him? How can I get on the God train instead of on the resentment or the regret train from my own childhood. I didn't have enough money, so I'm going to make a bunch of money so my child will grow up with three bicycles when I had none. Maybe he doesn't want three bicycles. Maybe he wants something else. And if Colossians 3.21 don't exasperate, aspirating has to do with breathing. And so it means don't suck the breath out of your child. Uh, don't keep making uh, nitpicky demands arbitrary expectations. I wanted to play baseball, so surely he'll want to play baseball. Does he? I love to hunt. He'll love to hunt. 
Maybe. What if he doesn't? What are you going to do? Don't exasperate your children by putting your own expectations on them, by pressing them, by having expectations that are too high. And it's interesting that both of the negative commands that are to dads have to do with expectation and frustration. It's interesting the difference. You, you, you know, you hear about helicopter moms and lawnmower moms. You ever heard anybody talk about a helicopter dad? Dads don't hover. They don't have the patience. They don't have the inclination. Not every woman hovers, but helicopter moms are called that for a reason. But dads do exasperate, and they do frustrate, because dads are demanding. I remember when I was growing up at Little League, there was one dad who owned a small business in Tallahassee, and he came to every stinking Little League baseball game that I ever played. His son was always on our team. And his son was terrible. And uh, he, he couldn't hit, he couldn't field, he couldn't throw, but his dad thought he was going to be a professional baseball player. And so if his son wasn't in the game, any kid that made a mistake, his dad would just scream, Why isn't my son in there? Look at that! He's... And, and you just, I mean, every kid on the team was just, send him back downtown. I never saw a mother do anything like that ever. At a, at a Little League football game, I mean at a Little League baseball game or a Cub League or anything else, mothers more likely to, to do their work after they get through with the game. But dads are out there demanding. And, and, and I remember a, a boy that I grew up with who was the most gifted athlete I've ever known whose dad was never satisfied with him. He always wanted more from him. And the guy wound up, he was on a full scholarship to a big SEC team and wound up drinking his way out of college and, and never fulfilled his capacity because his dad could never be happy with what he did. Whereas everybody else looked at this boy and thought, I wish I could be that good one day in my life. He could do anything athletically. And he was smart. But his dad always thought he ought to be more. And so his dad sucked the breath out of him he kept poking him with the be better sharp stick, and as a result, he lost heart. He was exasperated to anger, and his anger was internalized. Uh, he didn't get in fights. He didn't scream and yell at his dad. He didn't feel like he had the power to do it, but he was frustrated. And it says, don't provoke your children to anger, whether it's externalized uh, or internalized, most children don't begin to feel that they have enough power to lash back at their parents until they get to be teenagers. And that's why a lot of people talk about how difficult it is to raise a teenager because they are beginning to feel a little bit like your equal and so they will act out toward you in some ways the way you've acted out toward them. It's, it's a natural part of the developmental cycle of life. But this anger, it doesn't start when they're teenagers. It's, it starts when they get exasperated with us, when we overdo it with them. So they become angry. They lose heart. They become defeated. What's the solution? 
Well, realize you bring a lot of weight to a sensitive situation. All of us do. Uh, unfortunately, as the child feels helpless, a lot of parents do too. Ty felt looking over the rail of that crib. What do I do? He wants to see us. I don't want to see him at 3 o'clock in the morning. I'd like to see him when the sun's up. He won't quit crying. I can't sleep while he's crying. I feel guilty about it. What do I do to change this one-week-old? Nothing. You can't change a one-week-old. What you going to do? Put him on restrictions? So what do you do? Well, I felt powerless. Patty felt powerless. We felt guilty. What do you do with it? Now, what I would recommend that you do is say, accept the way you feel. It is, it's natural to the parenting game. But don't act on the basis of the frustration that you feel. Act on the basis of accepting what a child is like, accepting what the child needs, doing what you can for the child, realize you bring a lot of weight to a sensitive situation because every child wants to please his parents. Every single child wants to please his parents. But after a while, without meaning to, we convince them that they can't. So we lose some of that authority and influence that we have with them. So at every stage along the way, you need to realize you have got a lot of authority and influence with your children. If your children are in their 40s or 50s, you have a lot of influence and a lot of authority with them. It will never go away. It's part of the biological bond. A second thing, realize you are responsible for your child's emotional health. It doesn't mean that the child doesn't make any bad decisions or doesn't do anything for their own, but it's very clear from these two verses. Fathers, you can provoke your children, and you can avoid it. You can exasperate your children, and you can avoid it. So you have a responsibility for your child's emotional health, and you don't need to act like, I'm just going to be myself. J.C. Penney said one time, just be yourself unless you're losing at something, and then you better be something else. That's a good word. That's what Paul is saying. If you see being provoked to anger in your children, back off. Come up with another strategy. Uh, if you see heartlessness in your children, if you see the breath being sucked out of them in your children, back up. Come up with a new strategy. Number three, bring them up. This is a process. Parenting is a process. It's a process for failures and successes, but it's a process. You're not supposed to know how to be a parent when your child is a week old. Just like you're not supposed to know how to be a 12th grader in the first grade. All you're responsible for in the first grade is first grade stuff. Isn't that neat? Why then do we get frustrated about not being able to do fifth grade stuff in the first grade? It's kind of human nature. But as a parent, just understand bringing them up, moving along with them, understanding their life stages and your own failures and frustrations, part of it. Bring them up in the discipline, which means correcting them as gently as possible and teaching them. Dads, how often do you sit down with your children 
and talk to them about what the Bible says about life. I don't mean using the Bible for a hammer to threaten them. I mean using the Bible as a guide to understand what a good God is like and how much He loves them and you and how much He's in this with you and how much hope there is for life because God is good and is the God of hope and the future. Discipline them, teach them, and instruct them in the Lord. Let God and His Word be an example and a hope, not a hammer. I can't think of anything that bothers me as much as hearing parents threaten their children with God. Because what that always says to me is bad enough to me when I hear a parent yelling at a child in a store. But when I see a Christian parent, because when a parent is yelling at a child in a store, I think, you feel like you're out of control, you don't have any authority or power, so you think if you raise your voice, it will do what you're not able to do otherwise. But when you threaten people with God, it's the weakest position you can be in. It really says, I don't even believe I can grab enough authority in this situation to make a difference. So I'm going to bring God in and let Him be the heavy with you. And when you hear preachers yelling at people and basically threatening them uh, with God, I think to myself, teach them. Preach the Word. Trust the Spirit. Believe that God can work through what you're doing. Don't feel like you've got to bring in the gigantic, divine, eternal hammer. Patty had an uncle who uh, had a high school education, but was one of those people that you read a lot about in America. They're probably everywhere all over the world, but they're certainly here. This was a guy who had a really good brain. And without ever going to college, I remember him telling me one time about children. He said, Dick, I've always believed that if my child wasn't getting what I wanted her to get, the fault was mine more than hers. And I said, do you mean it's all up to you? He said, of course not. She has to cooperate. But I am the adult here. And it is easier for me to change for her than it is for her to change for me. Uncle Glenn was a brilliant man. I always admired him a great deal. A farmer with not a lot of education and a tremendous amount of sin. Well, number two, you need to value relationships over rules. Matthew 25, 24 through 27 is a passage of Scripture not normally connected to parenting, but I think it has some real application. Let me read these verses. This is the last part of what's called the parable of the talents. And the story is a a rich man goes away and he calls three servants to him and he gives to one five talents, to another two talents, and to another one talent. And he says, manage this until I get back. And he goes away. He doesn't tell them when he's coming back. And the interesting thing is he doesn't give them a single word of instruction. He doesn't say, I expect 3%, a 3% per annum return on my money. He doesn't say anything like that. He just says, manage this until I get back. And we'll find out in these three verses what he expected. And it's very instructive. Matthew 25, 24 through 27. 
The one also who had received one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered new seed. And I was afraid, so I went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have back what is yours. But the master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reaped where I didn't sow and gathered where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank. And on my arrival, you would have received my money. I would have received my money with interest. You ever wonder why the Bible doesn't have a book of the family? I mean, all of us struggle with family issues. So why doesn't the Bible have a book of the family? And the first chapter is parenthood. The second is husbandhood. The third is wifehood. And the fourth is childhood. And it's just all laid out with all kinds of neat rules for how to get it. Wouldn't that be fantastic? It would be terrible. Terrible. We've already tried that. The first two-thirds of the Bible contains 613 rules for life. It's called the law. How'd that work? It was terrible. Everybody reinterpreted it so that they would get an A in it. Uh, everybody figured out a way to ignore parts of it. That the parts that they liked, that they could lay on others, oh, they thought that was great. The parts that got laid on them, not so great. And so they just made a mess of it. And, and, and so Jesus came along and said, you know, this is the first commandment. You love the Lord your God, and the second is like unto it. You shall love your neighbors yourself. On these two commands hang all the laws and the prophets. And we've made a mess of that. We've turned love into permissiveness, uh, that, that everything is just about love. There are no standards apart what, from what make people feel loved. So moral standards are going away. So you can give us 613 rules, spell out all kinds of things. There are all kinds of rules in there. And people said they're too specific. And then Jesus summed it up in two, and we think that's too general. So how do we do it? Well, what happens here? First of all, I want you to understand the master in this case is God, and the servants are us. They are the stewards. They are given this responsibility. And, you know, when you, when, <laughs> I don't know why, but for years when I read this passage of Scripture, it says to he gave one talent. I felt like he said, here's a quarter. See what you can do with it. You know how much a talent was? It was the, in today's money, it would be $1,200,000. So the five-talent guy got $6,000,000. The two-talent guy got two point four, And the one-talent guy got $1.2,000,000. I don't know how you hide that in the ground. It's a lot of coins. And it was fewer back then, but this was gold. A talent was, I mean, this would have been, one talent would have been more than a life's wages. He gives this guy one talent. And he says, I'll be gone for a while. Take care of it. And the one talent guy makes a fatal mistake. He knows what his master is like. But he takes care of the coins based on his own emotions. I was afraid. So as a result, 
I followed my fear. The other two guys were probably afraid too. But they responded to the master's character. They knew that this guy never touched a dime that he didn't turn into a dollar. This guy was the Warren Buffett of the first century. He could make money. Reaping where I do not sow. I mean, you let me near a seed and I'll turn it into a crop. That was this guy. So those two guys said, no matter whether I'm afraid or not, I can't let my fears, my emotions, I can't let them determine what I do. I've got to let the master's character determine what I do. And dads, who is our master? The Lord God Almighty, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, the maker of heaven and earth. And the guide for dads is our relationship with God. How does God express his expectations to us? Well, he says in James, the wisdom which comes down from above is, among other things, reasonable. That is, it's understandable and it's doable for normal people of faith. How does God handle your failures? When you fail at him, when you sin, even when you knew better, what does God do? Well, I think, first of all, God maintains the standards. He's really... Our world, if, if, if enough people fail at something, they just say the standard didn't matter in the first place. God never says that. He maintains the standard, but he also maintains hope, grace, and patience. He doesn't send you to hell when you do. Even something shameful and embarrassing, he doesn't. But he continues to say, there is hope for you, I'm not finished with you yet. There is grace for you. I will give you what you cannot earn. There is mercy for you. I will withhold the punishment from you that you do deserve. And I will continue to work until one day in my presence in heaven, you are everything that God ever imagined you to be.